Welcome to Crafting Solutions to Conflict, a podcast exploring how to deal effectively with conflict, actual and potential, good and bad. Engaging guests discuss a range of insights, and I cover tips and topics based on my 35-year fascination with conflict and my experience helping people with it. I'm your host, Jane Bettle, and my goal is to share a perspective on conflict that is both practical and positive. My guest today is Mitzi Perdue. Mitzi has a unique perspective on the importance of family business culture. She was born into the Henderson family, founders of the Sheraton Hotel chain, and she married into the Purdue family, where her husband Frank was the head of the family-owned poultry business. Both families continue to thrive through the generations. Mitzi, thank you so much for joining me today on the show. Jane, it's total complete joy to be with you. Well, I am delighted. And as I said to you, I kind of said to myself, what took you so long, Jane, to invite Mitzi? So I'm glad finally my brain engaged and that you are here to talk with me today. Well, love it, love it, love it. Thank you. (laughs) Well, you, of course, have an unusual and I think I could even go as far as to say unique perspective on family culture and family business. Tell our listeners why I would say something like that to you. Oh, I'd love to answer that question. And I'm, I'm going to go with possibly unique because my family of origin is the one that started the Sheraton Hotel chain. My father was the co-founder and my uncle was the other co-founder. The Henderson family began as a business in 1840. And somewhere around 50 years into being a family business, we're talking now 1880, 1890, we've had reunions every single year since. So We've had 131 reunions, or this year will be our 131st. So I've lived an experience with a long-lasting family that has a culture that encourages lasting across the generations. But then the part that I think, and I'm aware of quite a few families that are long-lasting, but where I think I'm really lucky and have something additional to share, is that by marriage, I'm part of the Purdue family, and the Purdue family's been in business since... 1920. So we're 101 years old. So I've I've got two long-lasting family businesses, and I'd love to share some of the things that help them last. Fantastic. So I'm interested in what it would be like to be born into a family like your family. Well, in my view, it was heaven. (laughs) Good. I keep reading about dysfunctional families, but I would say that mine was high-functioning, and I'll define high-functioning. I think a high-functioning family is one that enjoys being together, that has a set of values that, let's say, keep them out of jail and keep them from doing drugs, that encourages education, that encourages people to work. I'm thinking of, of a phrase that I grew up with. Tell me if this doesn't resonate with you, and that is, he who loses wealth loses nothing. He who loses health loses something. He who loses character has lost everything there is. Fabulous. My family, including my extended family, were very big on character and stewardship and thinking of others and service. Mitzi, this emphasis was already there when you were born. True. How do you think it started? Uh, I think it may be one of the ingredients that began in 1840. Well, one of my ancestors 
actually, he, he wrote this in 1820, but we weren't a family business yet. His motto was walk in the light of eternity. And what I take that to mean is look towards the future. It's not about just now. You're stewards for something far into the future. Among the ways that my family keeps kind of the spirit alive, I hope I've got a lot of things that I can recommend to other families that they can do. What I'm about to describe is an exception. I don't know if one in a hundred families would want to do this, but by the time we're 60, we're supposed to write our autobiographies. Oh my. And then we go read the biographies from the past, which happens to be why I know what an ancestor said in 1820. Sure. But it gives you a feeling of where you come from and you are the stories you tell yourself. And if you've got a family that write books about, I believe you grammatical, if you've got a family that writes books about the struggles that they had, the successes, the disasters, even the health problems, mm-hmm. you've got more identity, I think. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, so if there's any family that wants to start writing books by the time you're 60, I encourage it. But <laughs> I also know that eh, that's probably not a good fit for everybody. <laughs> Not every family. Yeah, no, probably not. But my family loves it. I mean, it's just really exciting to read even my brothers and sisters who've all written their books. It's just so interesting to see we had the same parents, but and we went through the same events, but they just looked completely different to each of us. That's very powerful. Sometimes folks can feel, oh, well, everyone goes through the same experiences, roughly the same time. They will see things the same way. On the other hand, that seems... Very unlikely. <laughs> it's mind-boggling how differently. Yeah, I'm close to my brothers and sisters, but we experience things differently. We're all committed deeply to the family, enough so that when we have a family reunion, which we do every year, somewhere around 60 or 70 people will show up. Last year, it was virtual. And even yes. then, it was just a great experience. Wonderful. And it was a culture, I think you'll tell us, that continued to be strengthened continue to evolve? It was not stagnant. Well, I would love to meet the guy who started it all in 1840. I think he'd be so (laughs) amazed. But yeah, there's an evolution to it, including knowing how to do things virtual or bit by bit, we develop new traditions. And I just gave you a piece of information about writing books that's probably useless to everybody. Let me give you one that is useful. And that is traditions are the lifeblood of identity. So the more you can establish traditions, the better. Right. That might be just like what you th- serve at Thanksgiving, but I'll tell you a couple of, of Henderson ones. One that I just cherish is, where do I start? <laughs> so many are coming <laughs> to mind. Like at our family reunion, somewhere around 30 years ago, we decided, yeah, we had a budget where we could hire some expensive entertainment for our Saturday night. But then we decided, no. There are 70 of us. There's some talent. Some are writers, some are musicians, some are poets, some are essayists, some are dancers. Our tradition now is Saturday Night Live at Knollwood, which is the name of the family home. And people practice all year to display, you know, say if you're a musician or a singer, you've been practicing all year or a dancer to show off your talent. And it's just, you know, everybody looks forward to it. Mitzi, what's the age range for the performers? I'm going to guess just sort of in my mind, eyeballing it, age four to age 94. Wonderful. (laughs) You know, the 94-year-old might read a reminiscence of of her childhood. Uh, The four-year-old might just 
join with cousins doing some funny dance to music and waving scarves. The early teens might do magic tricks and they, they just get into it. And they know it's a tradition. They start from a very early age witnessing this. And this is what our family does. Yeah. And you know, another thing we do, oh dear, I'm back to useless again. (laughs) Am I forgiven? Yes, of course. Okay. Useless. I mean, maybe, maybe one out of a hundred of the people in our audience could find this useful, but in the Henderson family, because we're very geographically dispersed. I mean, from, how about from Tokyo to Maine? Yes. When somebody gets married, it's quite likely, or how about it's a certainty, that not everybody's going to be able to attend the wedding, particularly like if it's in China or Korea, because we're a very Asia-oriented family. Uh-huh. We have, at the reunion, we have recreations of the wedding. So the bride gets to wear the same dress that she wore at her actual wedding. One of the family members, he could be an actor, but he's just, he's perfect for performing the wedding service. Now he's six foot two. He's got the posture of, I'm going to say a priest. He'll read the ceremony that they had when it was the real one. And they'll say the same vows that they wrote. And they'll even process to the, the music that they had. And one of the ways of involving the little kids is you can buy the most fabulous costumes, like little tuxedos, little bridesmaids dresses. <laughs> so the eight or so little kids get to be, to be attendants for the wedding and they get to process. And it's, you know, it's just, it's a very meaningful tradition. And brides have told me, how about almost every time that they're almost as, no, how about they are as nervous <laughs> the second time around, because it gets to be very, very emotional and meaningful when you say those vows twice. Sure. Fantastic. But, but probably utterly useless because you have to have a very big family and they have to have weddings that not everybody can attend for, for this to make sense. It is the concept of involving the kids early on. It's fun. It's visual. It's active. It's meaningful to everyone. All of those characteristics. Yeah, including for the bride, the chance to wear her dress the, the second time. Yes, ever, ever, probably. That's kind of a wonderful thing in itself. Yeah. And and we even asked the people who attended the wedding uh, if they've made a toast to write down what the toast was and then give the toast again, where, where the whole family can be part of it. Because imagine, I'm going to give you a case that happened recently. It was a year ago. And because of COVID-19, very few people could attend. It was in Washington State. I think there were like 10 family members there. When Mm -hmm. we recreated the people who were there, they'll recite the same vows and they'll even give the same toasts. And and 70 people can get to witness it instead of 10. Delightful. So that is an interesting thing. As you say, not every family can do that. What are some things that you folks do that you think almost any family could do? Ah, this sort of depends whether you're first, second, third, or fourth generation. Okay. But let's start with making sure that you have all the traditions that you can manage because lifeblood of identity, you know who you are and where you came from. Something else that any family can do, make sure you know the family stories because there's a huge amount of research coming out of Emory University and the person behind it is Robin Fivish, F-I-V-U-S-H. Robin studies what makes families high-functioning. And I've already mentioned what makes a family high-functioning. You know, they, they like being together. They, they've got some ethics and values that just hold them together. They probably don't do drugs. So how do you get there? 
a lot of research. She has a whole laboratory and graduate students and fellow professors who study this. They've discovered that one of the most effective ways of making a family have functioning is knowing the family stories. And you don't know the family stories unless you spend time together. And she says that the more meals you have together, and I'm going to give some very specific numbers. If you have five meals together in the course of a week, it's not going to guarantee a successful family, but it's sure going to increase your odds. If you have one or fewer meals together as a family in the course of a week, those kids are much more at risk of things like drugs or antisocial behavior, even jail, because the family that, that knows its stories Yeah, we are the stories that we tell ourselves. And if your stories are, hey, we belong to something bigger than ourselves, we belong to a family that cares about us, Right. it's just so protective against the bad stuff and so encouraging for the good stuff. So I guess the biggest advice that, or the most useful advice I can share is have meals together, Mm -hmm. have trips together, spend time together. And that would be the first generation. And then as you continue on, you need to modify, but not throw that out, I imagine. Well, you know, that's first generation. Second generation, third generation, even fourth generation, make sure that you celebrate holidays together. Well, I'm thinking the Purdue's, we have pretty much a custom where alternate years, Thanksgiving is spent with the Purdue family. So if you're a married in, you get to spend Thanksgiving alternate years with your, with your birth family. Again, as a family, spend time together. And if you're a family business, good Lord, there are reasons to get together. The Hendersons get together because John Cleves Henderson, back 180 years or so ago, left money to fund a dinner together once a year. And it was a very first class dinner. But the investments that he had and that the family had and that were dedicated to this, they grew over time. And now it's a weekend. Mm-hmm. So what I recommend to everybody is if spending time together is the key to being high functioning and staying together, have a reason to do it. Yes. And very specifically, have endowed vacations. Frank Purdue left money for his for the Purdue's to get together. And in the case of us, it's every 18 months. The Hendersons are every 12 months. Uh-huh. The Purdue's are 18 months because some people like cold weather and some people like warm weather. Yes. And so we're able to sort of accommodate everybody. Now, how many people would that be at this point? That would show up probably 50. Mm-hmm. Actually, it depends. This is another thing that Frank did that I think was very clever, which is it's endowed, but it's funded by how well the company's doing. So it's from some company stock. If it's a rough year, boy, the the vacation is like a couple of days and it's right like right near Salisbury, Maryland. Yes. Or at least it's in the United States. When it's a great year, we have what we call a blowout vacation and, and something like, I don't know, 48 people went to Greece. Fabulous. Uh, so, and I like that because that's a way of sort of making people, even if you're not working in the company, very conscious of how the company's doing. You know, is it Greece or is it uh, camping out? (laughs) And and I don't think Frank ever expected to have, to be funding Greek vacations, but the company (laughs) did well some years and woohoo, it was fun. Absolutely. And it also hammers home the idea of this is what this is about. It's about the family business that is having a good year, not having a good year. 
Now, again, for, for families that are uh, third and fourth generation, the Henderson family, very specifically, we have a service to the family award and people compete for it. And I love the idea of, of having an award for service to the family because it gets people thinking, what can I do for the family in addition to all these wonderful perks that comes from being part of the family? That is marvelous. A question is coming to my mind, which is related to your unique perspective of having been born into the Henderson family and then having married into the Purdue family. What did you see that was different? I, as I recall it, you were not young when you... I was 48. So you had seen life. And when you then joined this second family that had a family business for many years and the family had been around for a long time, what were, if you can remember, your first impressions about the family culture that you were joining? Well, I had a personal rule, which is every organization I've ever joined, whether it was, I don't know, Encyclopedia Britannica, I worked for them for a few years, or the Treasury Department, where I worked a few years, or KXTV, wherever I worked, I decided it's not up to me to try to change somebody else's culture. It's to figure out what the culture is and be a team member. And part of that is noticing what you win points for and what you lose points for and do the things that you win points for. Yes. I'm a deep believer in respect other cultures. It's it's not, if, if you're joining a family, it is not up to you to change them, which makes me somewhat mad at Meghan Markle because I thought she was doing it all wrong. But for, for differences to answer your question, I was so focused on fitting in and trying to kind of be a team member that I wasn't terribly conscious of big differences. The overall big difference is Purdue Farms right now and when I joined, is an operating company. Yes. The Hendersons, we invest together. After we sold the Sheraton Hotel chain, when my father died, we had a great big package of stuff where we could invest together. But it's a lot easier to be in a company that just invests than in one that's an operating company. And I'll give a perfect example of that. I don't know if it's a perfect example. I will give you an example of that. Okay. The Purdue family had a certain amount of dissension over something that couldn't happen in the Henderson family. And it was the following. It was a great big gamble somewhere around, I'm going to guess, 15 years ago to decide to go organic. Today, we're the largest producer of organic chicken in the world. But you can't just one day say, oh, we're going to be organic. No, because if you suddenly withdraw all the things that you need to to be organic, like pesticides, herbicides, vaccinations... Yes. If you forego all of that, you can do it, but the chickens will all die. Not good. Not good. I talked with one of the chief veterinarians about how how it was possible to go from regular chicken farming to no antibiotics, just free range, every everything organic. He said, you have to have a hundred things go right before it'll work. And I think it took us something like, don't hold me to this, but I think it was like a decade, maybe 12 years before it became profitable. Mm. So the dissension was, you know, people are looking at our competitors are doing better. Right, right. But we're looking long term. And in the family, the the long termers won out. Yeah, it wasn't a totally easy decision to year after year seeing there's something called agristats where you see how you're doing financially compared to your competitors. And we'd always been like at the top of the heap. And now we were scraping along the bottom. Wow. The barriers to entry for organic chicken on a large scale are phenomenal. And I've lived through that. I've watched that. So one difference is 
if it's an operating company, there's a whole range of things that you've got skin in the game and you're worried about. And so, yeah, that was different. I guess. So as you know, Mitzi, I have a particular interest in conflict and how families can deal with that effectively. Looking back on that, what was important for the Purdue family to get through that dissension? Uh, Well, in the end, it was a bet. And the bet was, is it going to be a payoff deal to forgo peak revenue for a decade Mm. or not? And I think there was stress every year until the bet paid off and it paid off enormously because we're now the largest supplier of or producer of organic chicken in the world. And if you buy organic chicken at any like Whole Foods or Trader Joe's or any place, we support the house brands for organic chicken. The last I looked, there were 258 house brands. My goodness. Who bought their chicken from us. So for market share, it's just been stupendous. And it's really hard for a Johnny come lately to copy us. Through this difficult time, was the family able to stay together as a family through all of this? Oh, it was tough. Yeah. Oh my. If you have all your eggs in one basket, namely the company, and, and you're afraid eggs. that it's it's going to go, well, I don't think anybody was afraid we were going to go broke, but it's, it's a high tension situation. You know, we could certainly all talk with each other, but some people were really afraid. Yes. And some people were saying, go get them. Full speed ahead and going organic. We'll do this. I, I think because it ended well, the anxieties evaporated and that part's behind us. But no, it was difficult. Yeah. Well, encouraging that people were able to speak to each other. I am sure there are families where that would not have been true. The tension would have been too much, but the culture was there. Dennis Jaffe, my hero for studying family businesses, yes. I, I think he's been at it for 40 years. He, he told me, and I'm proving him not true. Yay. Uh, He told me that there's no such thing as a family that's been in an operating business for 100 years that hasn't pruned a branch. The branch either prunes themselves, you know, leaves in a huff or you cut them off because you can't work together. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know what the future is going to hold. I can sure hope. But as of our 101st year, yeah, there's no branch that's been pruned, even though there was. I, I don't know if I can describe it as conflict, distension count as conflict because there was tension, but it wasn't that we were yelling at each other. Well, that's a good thing. Mitzi, I recall when we chatted that one of the things that has been useful to the family culture has been philanthropy. And you have a particular dedication to that. Tell us a little bit about that. I would love to. If you were to ask me what keeps both families together, I would say endowed vacations, which means people have a reason to come together. And philanthropy. And philanthropy is so important. Dennis Jaffe says that almost every third generation, by the time a family's third generation, they've discovered the importance of philanthropy. Because philanthropy, it's identity that keeps you together. And philanthropy, when you're working on something where you know you're on the side of the angels, you are doing good in the world, that helps keep the family together. I'm just beyond passionate about the possibility of doing some real good in the world in relation to human trafficking. And I'm not sure how familiar you are with with human trafficking. For me, a, a couple of years ago, it was just words. But I heard a lecture that totally changed my life. It was about just the unthinkable amount of suffering. There, According to the United Nations, there are 40 million people in modern day slavery. And 
8 million of those are sex slaves. And very typically, a 12-year-old girl may be forced to have sex with strangers 10 times a night, 365 Mm. days a year. And there's sort of a myth that the traffickers keep control of these people by drugs. I've heard that, yeah, that does happen, but that's not the strong control. No, they do it by withholding food. Oh, my goodness. You might have a girl who's been trafficked for years. Maybe she's 20 years old and she weighs 94 pounds and she's mm-hmm. five feet five. And why, why is she so thin? Well, her trafficker withholds food so that she looks young. Oh, heavens. Oh. I mean, so it, it's, just, it's evil beyond imagination. Absolutely. In my own personal view of it, the most good I can do with the biggest impact is doing something about that, about human trafficking. Now, human trafficking is a business, and the traffickers do it to make money, $150 billion a year. What if we could attack their financial crimes, sort of the way Al Capone? Yes. Al Capone was a murderous thug, but they could never put him in jail because they couldn't get witnesses against him. What they did put him in jail was financial crimes, particularly tax evasion. Right. Well, I'm deeply involved with a great many people, whether it's Singapore or Hong Kong or Australia, people I've communicated with in the last couple of days, uh, or throughout the United States in trying to attack human trafficking as a financial crime. And that involves finding people who very often it might be ex-CIA, ex-FBI, even ex-IRS, who have phenomenal abilities to track the dark web, use artificial intelligence, find the paper tail and the crimes. And and maybe even, maybe they aren't even using the banking system. There's still Mm. ways to find them. Yeah. And traffickers, they've got less than one chance in a hundred of doing jail time for their crimes because they can, they can create reluctant witnesses. Sure. Sure. Mitzi, how can people learn more about this work? So important and complicated. And as you mentioned right off the bat, something many of us know so little about. Well, I would absolutely love it if they would come to my website and sign up for my blog, or even better, volunteer. Whatever your skills are, we will find a use for them. And it's just amazing the skills that, by the way, have come through. Like even the name, when this fight came from a volunteer who's a neuroscience marketer, whatever your skill, whether it's accounting or whatever it is, artistry, videography, we have a use for you. So tell us how they could find you. And I will, of course, put that in the show notes so people can learn more about this important fight. Come to winthisfight.org. Great. And how could people learn more about you and your work involving family enterprise, family culture, and how families can be successful? All right. That's a different website. And that's mitziperdue.com. Well, that's an easy one. It has been a delight to talk with you, Mitzi. I appreciate both the somewhat unusual options that your family has been able to embrace and the ideas of carrying that over to any family. Thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy the Crafting Solutions to Conflict podcast, please tell a friend, share it, leave a rating or review. When you spread the word, more people have a chance to enjoy the show. You can also sign up for new weekly episodes on your favorite app. Whatever setting works best for you, and it's free. You don't need to pay to listen. You can also find the show at CraftingSolutionsToConflict.com. Comments or ideas? Let me know. Until next time, I'm Jane Vettel.